Well, now this morning we are in our third chapter of Ruth. We've been working through Ruth in this uh, four-part series, four chapters, four parts. That works pretty good. And it's called uh, Field of Hope. And uh, this story really takes place in the, the lens of three really important people in the history of Israel, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And this is really Naomi's story. Ruth gets the book named after her, but it's really Naomi's story because she's the one who has lost hope. She's the one who is in need of redemption. And I'm just going to quickly go over what uh, we've done through uh, so far. And Naomi has lost both uh, of her sons and she lost her husband. And so in the social scale of Israel at the time, Naomi is at the very, very, very bottom. She's dirt. She's a nobody. She has no worth and she has no value in the society that she's living in. Now, she lived in Bethlehem and she moved to Moab where um, there was no famine in Moab. And she took her husband and her two sons and her two sons married Moabite women, one named Ruth and one named Orpah. And after 10 years, when neither one could produce a son and the husband died and all the husbands died of the two daughters, Naomi decides that she's going to return back to Bethlehem. And as they start out, the two daughters walk with her and she gets to almost halfway and she basically stops and looks at him and says, listen, I've got nothing for you. When we go to Bethlehem, we're going to be mistreated and things aren't going to go well for us. So if you want to leave now, you can. And Orpah says, yep, that's what I want to do. And she goes back to Moab where she's from. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. She says, where you die, I will die. The land that you make your home is the land that I'm going to make my home. The people of your city are going to be the people of my city. And so Ruth stays despite the risks, despite what they know is coming for them in Bethlehem. And she goes to Bethlehem and she starts gleaning in the field of Boaz. And gleaning is an Old Testament law that says that when you have a field, when you're a field owner... You don't have to harvest the sides of your field and the corners of your field. And you don't really have to put a lot of effort into um, pulling up any grain that's fallen on the ground. So as uh, this is basically Israel's welfare system. So as she enters the field of Boaz, she's gleaning from his field. She's taking the crops that haven't been harvested And she's taking whatever is left over that the harvesters have not picked up. And Boaz does something incredible here. Boaz sees Ruth and sees that she is hopeless, and he gives her uh, 29 pounds of barley, about a half a month's wages, and returns that to Naomi. And Naomi gets more than she bargained for with Boaz, because all of a sudden she realizes that she's dealing with a man of God. She's realizing that she's dealing with a person of character, a person that wants to redeem them and bring them through this. The book of Ruth is all about this um, Jewish word, this Hebrew word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And it's not very easily translatable into English. And you can tell because in different translations of different Bibles, they use a different word for this Hebrew word hesed. Um, Sometimes you might see it as kindness or loving kindness or loyalty or commitment. I think the best word that we have that describes this is mercy. So throughout this book, um, Naomi uses the word twice, and Boaz uses it once. 
And throughout this book, the theme is mercy. The theme is hased. It's all about trying to get this mercy. It's a love that costs something. It's a commitment from one person. It's two parties that are involved in someone who is hopeless and desperate and just crazy enough to try something, and a second person who has power and resources to make a difference in that person's life. That's a said. That's mercy. That's compassion. That's love for another person. And it's used three times, uh, in 1.8, in 2.20, and 3.10. Starting at the end of chapter 2, when seeing what Ruth has brought home, she realizes God has been at work in her story and in Ruth's story. And she looks at Ruth and says, he has not stopped showing his hesed to the living and the dead. Now, which he does he mean? Boaz or the Lord? It's not really clear, and it's probably not important because both of them are showing mercy and kindness. When she leaves Moab, she is convinced that the Lord's hesed, his mercy for her has evaporated. But the Lord's said reaches Naomi through Ruth's selfless and relentless commitment. And that's what we're going to look at today in chapter 3. So I invite you to open there if you haven't already um, in your uh, Bibles or approved electronic devices. And the first thing that we see in Ruth and Naomi's story, and this is all circling around hope. So it's field of hope, and, and we want to tie it all back to that. But this idea of hopelessness, that she doesn't have this, this faithfulness or this love from God that she's not feeling from that. But we read first the story of redemption. We need a redeemer in this story of hope. And so it opens with these first four verses. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on your perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. See, sorrow is going to follow Naomi to her grave. She's never going to get past her sorrow. There's no end to grief because there's no end to love. And as soon as we stop loving things, and as soon as we stop loving the things in our life, that's when we stop having grief over those things and we lose them. So Naomi is not saying, my sorrow is done, but she's saying, hey, our time of grieving is over. Dress yourself so people don't think you're grieving anymore. Because when her husband died, when Naomi's husband died, and when Ruth's husband died, they would have to be in traditional grieving clothes. They would go through a process of grieving, and people could tell what they were doing. And Naomi looks at Ruth and says, hey, hey, we got to bust out of this. We got to stop this grieving process. We got to clean ourselves up and show people that we are ready to move on. This is the price of love to feel grief when it's gone. We put ourselves out there and we take that risk to make ourselves vulnerable. And we say we can't stop our grief. We can't stop our sorrow in this moment. But what we can do as we can take a leap of faith, we can take this risk that says, I'm going to move on now. I'm going to trust that there's going to be a redeemer here who's going to give my story redemption and say, you don't have to mourn anymore. You don't have to act like things are gone. Now let's start acting like it. 
And see, to Naomi, Ruth represents a light in a dark, dark place. Here they are, two women at the bottom of society who now have no husbands, so they have no worth, and they have no money, and they have no fields, and they have nobody to inherit the land or anything that Naomi has. They're on welfare. And so all of a sudden, Ruth can be used in a way that shows redemption process. I think sometimes in our lives, and even as a church body, we can act sometimes like Jesus is still in the grave. Like when we go through our lives and when we put ourselves out there, when we have faith, we act like God is still has his son in the grave. He hasn't redeemed that part. And then we act like we're still in mourning. Like we're just going to wander around and say, Jesus is dead. Death has not been conquered. And I should live my life as a very sad person. I should just live my life as if there's nothing happening. But I'm here to tell you today, Ruth shows us that we can be a light in the dark. Ruth shows us that we need to take off our mourning clothes and put on the clothes of a redemptive savior who has said, I have conquered the grave. You don't have to mourn anymore. You can be alive in Christ. You can have hope and you can have faith and you can have light in a very, very dark place because Jesus is not in the grave. He lives. And we need to live our lives as Christians. We need to live our lives as a church that shows people the difference in our attitudes, that shows people that we are different because Jesus is alive today. We can't dress the way we used to dress. We can't act the way we used to act. We need to show the world that there is hope and that there is redemption through Christ. God is faithful whether Naomi has a husband or not. That's not where her identity is found. He's faithful because of who he is, not what he does for Naomi. He is faithful because of who he is, not because he gave them a field. He is faithful because of who he is, not because he called them back out of Moab to Bethlehem. God is faithful. End of story. End of sentence. He doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to give anything. God is faithful whether he does it or not. And if we live our lives according to that idea... We're going to be happy people. We're going to be people that feel alive. We're going to be people filled with light rather than living like waiting waiting for God to give us a blessing, waiting for God to show up when we feel so hopeless. See, Naomi's hopelessness means that she's bought a lie about who God is. This was the first trick that the devil played on us, was buying into a lie that we believed about God to be true. Did God really say that? I guess not. I guess he didn't. Did God really say that he was going to help you through every time? Hmm, I don't know. He feels really far from me now, so I really don't know what to say. Did God really say those things? No, I guess you're right. So I do, I do have a reason to feel hopeless because Jesus isn't who he says he is, and God isn't who he says he is, and God hasn't met me here in this place. God isn't doing what I expected him to do. But Naomi is showing us that we don't have to buy this lie. We don't need to be hopeless people because we believe in a God who is always faithful. Whether we're in feast or whether we're in famine. Whether we're buying dinner for people or whether we're on welfare. 
God sees us in that struggle and he remains faithful to the bitter, bitter end. He pursues us in that. The story is about Naomi, but Ruth is the spur to her redemption. She sees what Boaz has done for Ruth and says, there's hope yet. Ah, yeah, God was still working. And so you know what we need to do? We show people that God is working in their lives. We get to be that spur in other people's story. We get to be that redemption for them. And we get to say, hey, you know what? God is going to meet you in your sickness. God's going to meet you in your sorrow. And he's going to show up and he's going to say, I'm still working here with whatever you're struggling with. And he gives that message of hope for you to take to people. You don't get to hold it in. You get to show people that God is still working. And so the next thing that we see is that hope is a protection. Hope has this protection around us. We feel secure. We feel protected with that. In verse 1, Naomi says, I must find you a home. Some translations might say, I need to find rest for you a place where you're provided for. That word, home and rest, it means security. It means protection. I need to find a place of protection for you so that you can rest, so that you will be provided for. And Boaz is sleeping next to his grain. In verse uh, 7, that's where we find him. He lies down at the far end of the grain pile. Here, let me explain the threshing floor. This is where, this is where Boaz is, is right now, and, and Ruth goes to meet him there. So when, uh, this is a picture of barley up here, by the way. That's what that looks like. Um, so when you would harvest barley, you'd cut it at the stalk, and the top part is uh, where the grain is stored, but the grain is inside a chaff, which protects the grain so it doesn't you know, drop to the ground. So it grows on this stalk, and when you harvest, you're cutting all of that barley, and you're bundling it, and you're taking it to what's called the threshing floor. And on the threshing floor, you would take handfuls of barley, and you would throw it on the ground. And you would either stomp on it, or you would take um, what's called a a sledge stick or a a threshing stick, or you would have oxen pull something, a a big stone that would go over it, or, or hooves would press down on it. But somehow, on this hard floor the threshing floor, the grain would be separated from the chaff. And then you would take what's called a winnowing stick, and you would lift all of that grain into the air. The grain would fall, and the chaff would blow away in the wind. And so when you were done at the end of the day, and this process took several days to to harvest your field, and there was usually only one threshing floor in a town, so not everyone could be there harvesting at the same time. But this happened to be Boaz's weak to do this. So what he is doing is at the end of the day, when all the grain is there at the bottom of the threshing floor, he's resting by it. Now, this is a job that would have been usually given to someone who didn't have a lot of status. Boaz is the owner of the field, so he has a lot of power in Bethlehem. He's a landowner. He's probably one of the elders. He has a lot of commitment and a lot riding on this grain, but he could have handed it off to someone a natural protector, but Boaz chooses to protect the thing most valuable to him, which is the grain. Because if you didn't sleep next to the grain, that grain could get stolen. And then there goes your money, there goes your livelihood, there goes your food, there goes all the trade and all the things that you were going to use to pay your people. 
Now, uh, Mr. Baptist, John the Baptist, he uses the threshing floor as an example of judgment to come. Um, so in Matthew 12, he talks about how Christ has the winnowing stick. And he's lifting the grain into the air. And the grain will fall. And those are the people that have uh, bore fruit in his name. Those are the believers. Those are the people that have followed him. And the people that have not amounted to anything, followers of him, believers of him, they will be lifted into the air. And it says they will be extinguished by the inextinguishable fire. So this threshing floor is a very important part of the culture of the city in Israel. It's really important that we understand the metaphor that's happening here. Because what you have on the grain floor is the most protected thing that you can own. So when we find Boaz, we know that he is a protector. We know that he's a good man. Because he is the one protecting his grain. He's the one protecting the thing most important to him. So this then becomes a question of value and worth. What do you give worth to? What is worth to you protecting? Family, friends, job, um, wealth, popularity, a better job at the expense of others, your opinions, control over a situation. See, worship is what we give value to. Worship is us standing in front of God saying, I honor you and value you and worship you in my life. I give you worth. Worship is worth-ship, worth-full. And so if we're protecting something that we think is valuable, we're essentially worshiping it. We're essentially saying, the thing that I'm holding most precious to me, that's what I worship. And so these things that we want to rid ourselves of as Christians, things that we come into context with, we want to start looking to get rid of holding on to wealth, holding on to possessions, holding on to job titles, holding on to those things that hold us away from our families. Workaholic syndrome, I call it. That's going to keep us from family. That's going to keep us from commitments here at the church. And then we can realign our priorities and start to say, well, actually what I worship, what I value, what I find worth in is family. And so now we protect that. We protect that over everything else. And we say, my family is more important to me than my job. My marriage is more important to me than my job or my wealth. So the things that we value, we're going to protect. And a good portion of our life is looking for the answer to that question. What do I value in life? What's my identity? What kind of person do I want to become? And you want to learn to value something? Here's a really simple way to learn to value something. You're going to pay attention to it. So if you're paying attention to someone or something or putting time into it, and you're not distracted by something else, you value that. So the person that's standing right in front of you and is talking to you and you're paying attention to the things that they're saying instead of checking your phone or checking a voicemail or checking messages or wandering off and trying to think of something else to say, you're now putting value onto that person next to you. Want to value your spouse? Pay attention to them. Want to value your church? Pay attention to it. 
Make it a priority in your life to listen to what's going on in your church. When a pri- when a, uh, pay, you want to value your God, pay attention. That's what prayer is. It's paying attention to the things that God is speaking to you. So there's an easy example of how we can value something more. Is all we just have to say is that what am I paying attention to? Is my wife or husband talking to me and I'm distracted by something on the TV or listening to music or talking to someone else around me? Is the friend standing in front of me less important to me than what's on my phone? What are we paying attention to? What are we valuing as a people, as a church, and as a believer in Christ? Next, we see that hope is a choice. Now, I don't mean that hope is a choice for you, whether you can have hope or not. I'm saying that when we have a choice, we have hope in our lives. True freedom is being able to have a choice. If you look at the subcontinents, if you look at the majority world countries in the the poverty south of the world, in places like Africa and and, um, the subcontinent of India, People who are in poverty there have no hope. They have no freedom of choice. You and I take it for granted that we can choose what to wear in the morning or choose what breakfast we want or where to have lunch or dinner, what we're going to cook that night. Maybe we chose which car we were going to drive to church today. That is freedom. Being able to have a choice in your life to do something. Now, when people are in extreme and abject poverty, they don't get choices. They have no freedom. A lot of times in the sex trade, we'll see people that want to go in and rescue that situation and say they are living in poverty and they have no way out and they just get kidnapped and they're um, forced to work beyond their control. Now, that may be true in some cases, but if you read the research and you read the people that are out there on the ground, there are people choosing this life. There are girls 12 years old in Singapore, in Bangkok, who don't have a choice, who live in such abject poverty that they have no choice but to work as a slave girl for the rich tourists that come into town so that they can feed their families, so they can find a way out of poverty. They have no hope because they don't have a choice for what they want to do. And so I'm saying to you today, we have hope because we always have a choice of what we want next. We have a choice of our future. Now, the opposite of this may be even truer. Ruth made a choice on the road to Bethlehem, and she also made a choice on what to tell Boaz. She had a choice standing there in front of Naomi, and and Naomi says, you don't have to go. And Ruth at that moment has a choice to say, yes, you're right, or no, you're wrong. I do have to go. And so Ruth made a choice to do the harder thing. And so don't get me wrong on this. This is not a blank check to just take risks and just say, YOLO, God's going to be at the end and he's going to rescue me if I make any dumb decisions. It's not a blank check to do that because a lot of people use that maybe as a way to get out of their job or a way to get out of a relationship. They just say, you know what, my marriage isn't working for me, this relationship isn't working for me, and I think God is telling me I need to leave, so I'm just going to take a leap of faith and do it. Because sometimes you have to make the hard choice. 
Nope. That's the easy choice. The hard choice is to stay through the suffering. The hard choice is to say, how can I redeem this relationship? How can I be a light in this relationship? How can I stay faithful to the vows that I took to tell God and to say, hey, I know you're faithful and I know you will come and redeem and protect. Having hope is saying, I could have gone the easy way, but I'm doing the hard thing on this day. Now, her choice goes beyond the letter of the law and goes to the spirit of the law. Listen to this. Uh, In verse 8, it says, In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Uh, Let me pause just there and put this aside in there. Some people will um, believe that when she uncovers his feet, that's a sexual act. It's not. Don't listen to those people that say that. And I'll tell you why. Because... We know already that Boaz is a man of character. He's a man of worth. He's a man of valor. And we know that Ruth is also. And so what Ruth is doing here is she is gently waking him up. She lifts the blanket off his feet so that the cold, cool air of the night will wake him. And she goes in the night so that if he rejects her, she doesn't feel shame and he doesn't feel shame and rejecting that. This isn't a sexual story. This is a story about two people who... Have hope for each other. This is a story about redemption. And so, to continue there in verse 9, he wakes up and he looks at the woman. He says, who are you? She says, I'm your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. Now, she goes beyond, beyond what is necessary there. The law says that In Naomi's case, the field must go to the next closest relative. The law also says that there needs to be a son born, and so there needs to be a way to produce a son. In one fell swoop, Ruth asks Boaz not only to take care of the inheritance, but to take care of the son. Spread your wing over me. Now, she made a choice here to go above and beyond what was necessary above and beyond what she was called to do. Just like she did on the road to Bethlehem. She went above and beyond. The letter of the law says Boaz only needs to meet her this far. In fact, Boaz, will find out, is not even the closest relative. So he actually has no obligation to fulfill this. That's what the law says. But what the spirit of the law says is help me, protect me, make me secure. And so Ruth chooses to go further than that. And in verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness, this hesed is greater than you showed earlier. Who'd she show mercy to earlier? Well, Naomi. Because Boaz met Ruth in the field and she said, I'm working on behalf of Naomi. None of this stuff is for Ruth. All of this stuff is for Naomi because Naomi is the one that feels shame because her husband is gone and she doesn't have a son to pass the field to. So everything that Ruth is working for is for Naomi, which is above and beyond the call of the law. The law says, let them glean. The law says, give them welfare and that's it. But what the spirit of the law says is feed them. Make sure they don't go hungry. 
Make sure that you can stand and know that you did everything that you were supposed to. Ruth made a choice to go beyond the law to what the spirit of the law intends. And it's so irrational that a man of Boaz's standing would marry Ruth. She's an immigrant. She's on welfare. She's a pagan because she's a Moabite. So she's got three strikes against her. And yet Boaz looks at her and says, yes, I will do that thing. Because you are doing something incredible for Naomi when you didn't have to. Yes, it's a huge risk. But they both jump into it. Boaz is described as a man of substance in verse uh, 1 in chapter 2. But now Boaz uses the same words to describe Ruth in verse 11. He calls Ruth a woman of substance, a woman of value. Boaz chooses to go beyond what was required regarding the value of women. Ruth went beyond the law to her loyalty to Naomi. Ruth shocks Boaz by declaring she wants more than just protection. She wants an inheritor for Naomi. And see, the natural human inclination for us in our fallen state is just to do the bare minimum of what the law requires of us. Of what it is to obey scripture. How much can I get away with? How much can I get close to sin? And Jesus corrects us. I don't know if you know this, but as he was teaching in Matthew, he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. That's what the law says. And, but Jesus says that's not the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is if you lust in your heart after another person, you have committed adultery. Whoops. And Jesus said, you have heard it said that you should not murder. That's the letter of the law. You should not murder. But if we're here to talk about spirit of the law, If you're angry with someone in your heart, you've already murdered them. Whoops. So Jesus is calling us to move beyond. He's saying, you have a choice to make here. You can do the bare minimum, or you can go beyond what's required of you. You can move into the Spirit. General uh, Doug MacArthur said this, you are known by the rules you break not the rules that you keep. And so we have to look at the rules that we're keeping in our lives. We have to look at the little boxes that we keep God in to say, no, you can't break any of these rules. This is my expectations of you. Don't get outside of those rules. And we have a rule for tithing, 10%. That's what we want to tithe. That's the rule. But what's the spirit of tithing? Give what you can. So people... Don't go hungry so people can eat. Service to the poor, that's just the rule of the law. But what's the spirit of the law? Give them more than they're expecting. And to outsiders, what's the rule of the law? But let's give them more than they're expecting. And finally, what we see in hope is that hope is compassion. Hope is a place in our lives where someone has looked at us and said, I see you. I see who you are, and I know what you need. But Boaz didn't send her back empty-handed, or she would have been shamed. He gives her six measures of barley, which is about a month's wage for a worker. So not only does he give her more than he wants, that she needs, that any worker would have been entitled to, he looks at her and says, 
I love you so much. I want the best for you and Naomi so much that I'm going to give you more than you have earned. Boaz sees Ruth and sees what she has done for Naomi. And Ruth is now the vehicle to bring his sad, to bring that mercy, that loving kindness to Naomi. And this is the good news for us because God's favorite way to work in the world is through his people. And so we get to be the people that bring this mercy. We get to be the people that bring this love to other people. Boaz sees Ruth, realizes what she needs, and has compassion on her. Not because of her status. He wouldn't have done anything for her then. She didn't deserve anything in that society. Not because of her said for Naomi, but because he cares to give her compassion. I don't care about your stupid country or your fat dad. None of it matters. I want to give you something that is kind. Something that you deserve more of. Boaz teaches us to be compassionate to people who don't look like us. He teaches us to have compassion for everyone we see because what we bring to them is hope. What we bring to them is value and worth. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. Just do the small thing in front of you every single day. You don't always have to work from a five-year plan, but just be faithful for what's in front of you. Be faithful with the people around you and be kind to them. In some of the research that's coming out about depression now, um, psychologists are now sort of talking to depressive patients, and they're telling them to change the words. It used to be that um, we believed that uh, people with depression suffered with um, things called self-love and self-worth. Those are kind of abstract things to help a person with. They say, well, if you're, uh, if you're feeling depressed, just um, give yourself worth. But they're changing the word now to self-compassion. That when we do things, when we take risks, when we put ourselves out there, be kind to yourself, even if you fail. Be kind to yourself when you do these things. Because otherwise, you're going to fail at finding hope in your situation. Christ sees you as important and valuable. He has compassion for you. He believes that you're worth it. He believes that you're worth protecting. He wants to surround you with his love. And look what happens in Ruth's story and with Naomi. We learn alongside Naomi that God's said love is indiscriminate. It's unearned and it is persistent. It will pursue us at all costs. It will kick down walls to find you. It will light up dark places to find you. And we're going to find out next week in the final chapter of this story that Ruth is going to have a son. That son's name is Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David who becomes the king of Israel. And David, as a small boy, will stand in front of a giant named Goliath, and he will stand unafraid because he knows his God has provided, because his great-grandmother said, I believe in hope. I believe that God is faithful. And David will stand in front of Goliath, and he will become a redeemer 
for the nation of Israel. He will become a protector for the nation of Israel. And when it comes time to be king, he will make a choice to go above and beyond what a king is called to do. And he will have compassion on his people. And that compassion and that love will follow him so that when he writes in his journal someday, surely goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life. And it happened because Ruth looked at Naomi and had compassion. Boaz looked at Ruth at what she was doing for Naomi and had compassion and said, you are worth it. You are worth redemption. 